Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21, and it says this, And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on the text this morning, we see clearly the advance of your kingdom here on earth with Jesus Christ. Lord, and the advance of the kingdom is met with confrontation, and it's revealed through a demonstration of Christ's authority. And it's made clear through an explanation, Lord. So I pray this morning that you would make clear to us your scriptures by the power of your spirit. We invite the presence of your spirit to be with us, to open our ears to hear what he has for us this morning. Lord, would you speak to us and bless the reading and teaching of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' good name. And the church said, amen. amen. So as we pick up today in Mark chapter 1, um, this is actually one of, one of the cool stories. I'll give a little bit of background just to pick us up where we are. If you're looking back in this book of Mark, you'll realize that the author Mark packs a lot of information into a very small little bit of text. And you'll be like, wow, it seems like he's going really, really fast. And in comparison to other gospel accounts, Mark seems to be jumping from one scene to the next to the next and packing so much detail into such a little tiny amount of space. So it is good to go back and review just a little bit um, where we're at again. So up till this point, we've seen that Jesus' ministry was proclaimed by this man called John the Baptist, who was just this wild man in the desert, and his whole aim was to bring attention to the Savior, the Messiah, who was going to come and reveal himself until the point that he sees Jesus at the Jordan River and baptizes Jesus, and then Jesus begins his ministry. Um, we know that Jesus doesn't just begin his ministry, but after being baptized in the Jordan River, he actually begins his ministry by being tempted by Satan. And he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. We see that in um, not only the book of Mark, but even expanded in the book of Luke and other gospel accounts record that. Um, so he's baptized, he's tempted by Satan, then he returns to the region of Galilee and starts making disciples, and he makes this habit of teaching in their synagogues on a regular basis. So at this time, 2,000 years ago, um, for a standard Jewish practice, a, a Jewish man in particular, uh, that'd be 12 or older, would be going to the Sabbath on the Sabbath day, which would be a Saturday. Um, so that was basically their church, if you will. That was their Sunday morning service. They would go on the Sabbath, their day of rest, to be taught the scriptures and from the scriptures from whoever happened to be leading the Sabbath um, teaching that day. And generally speaking, um, these different synagogues, um, like there was, the, there was the main temple we have in Jerusalem, but there was all these synagogues, especially in the region, if you look behind us in the map, of Galilee was quite, was quite north of Jerusalem. And so to travel down to Jerusalem every Saturday morning for, uh, for teaching would have been quite a journey. So they had these synagogues that were locally in these towns, and the synagogue leaders would generally invite other local and traveling or guest teachers to come and teach there. So Jesus, um, being well-known in his teaching, um, would be invited on a regular basis to teach in the synagogues, and that's what he made a practice doing. And everybody began to praise his teaching. 
He was a phenomenal teacher. And Jesus returns back even to his hometown before where we pick up today of Nazareth. It's where he grew up. Um, he was a, 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 just a carpenter's son. Um, and in Nazareth, he teaches and he opens up the scriptures by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And at that time, the Lord's favor, at the time, the Lord's favor has come. And then he sat down in their midst and said, this scripture is fulfilled today. And all of the Jews in his hometown are like, who is this Jesus guy? He's speaking with authority. He's opening up the Bible and saying, this is talking about him. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And they got angry with him in his own hometown. People he grew up with, the people closest to him. And you see here very clearly that a prophet has no respect and no authority in their hometown. And they, they threw him out of, of Nazareth. So Jesus relocates his ministry headquarters north to a region in Galilee and a town called Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a hometown of a man that we would be familiar with as Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. And in this region, um, Jesus' ministry will take place in this region of Galilee. Um, behind us, you can see here on the map, this whole region of Galilee um, for about the first 10 chapters in the book of Mark. It's a really significant area. Um, we see many towns there. Um, in particular, the town of Capernaum was a thriving town. It was big enough that it actually required Roman soldier presence, um, that there was actually centurions there, um, we read throughout the Gospels, that would come to Jesus and ask him to either to heal their son or um, just ask, him, ask, ask them about salvation. And we wouldn't have a centurion there if there wasn't a detachment of Roman soldiers, and we wouldn't have a detachment of Roman soldiers there, a hundred or more, if... There wasn't a need for it. So we can see that this was a city of great wealth, great decadence. It was the headquarters for these Roman troops in Capernaum. And this happened to be a very good place, I think, for Jesus to begin his earthly ministry um, in this city where his word and, and word about Jesus could easily spread all over the Roman Empire from there. So this town, little town of Capernaum sits just northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Um, I've stood on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and it is insanely big. Um, in fact, it almost looks like a sea when you're looking across. It looks like you're looking at the ocean um, in parts of it, and you can barely see the other side. So I can see um, where, where we read in the scriptures that the disciples are on this boat, and they're thinking they're going to drown. I, I can feel what they mean, because it's like it, it looks like an ocean, and the, there are actually waves, even though this is just a lake. Um, so there's, that is interesting, uh, being 13 miles long, 8 miles wide at its widest. So um, Jesus went to real historical places. He taught in real historical places. He went with real historical people. He talked about real historical people. And that's what, uh, just an important point I bring up this morning is that those places are still there. Where Jesus taught, where he walked, where he went, those places are still there today. And it's, and it's good for us to remember that. And they went to C Capernaum, in, beginning in Mark 1, 21, and on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. Jesus went to the synagogue on Saturday morning religiously, not because he woke up Saturday morning feeling like he wanted to go to church. What do I mean by that? I mean that it wasn't just a feeling-based religion that Jesus was, was doing here. He wasn't just going to the place where the people of God were gathering to hear the word of God taught because he felt like it. He was going because he needed to be there. He was going because the word of God is powerful and effective. It's sharpened any double-edged sword. It cuts between the joint and marrow. It 
cuts into our lives. Now, if we go to church just because we wake up in the morning and we feel like it, I don't think that we're in a good place. Jesus went all the time. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was at the synagogue. If people were looking for Jesus on a Saturday morning and they asked anybody in this region of Calvary, where would Jesus be today? Oh, he's going to be in the synagogue. Did you check the local synagogue? Oh, no, I didn't check the local synagogue. Let me go check. Let me go see where Jesus is. And without doubt, that's where they would find him all of the time, teaching the word of God. I bring that up because it, it is sad to me that um, we, I've seen studies um, of local church attendance, and that is evangelical church attendance at, at large, that church, a, regular, a regular person that says they come to church regularly, like on a normal basis, is between one, once to twice every five weeks. Now, I, mean, that, I just don't see evidence for, for that kind of attendance in the Bible. I just don't. Why? Because life in connection, living life in connection with other believers is important, and Jesus was part of that. That we're made to be part of a community of people called the family of God that are set aside for his purposes. That means you need to be here. That means we need to be in the, in the presence and the family of God. But this, this brings up another good point, though, that the leaders of the synagogue were known specifically for their boring teaching. And I laugh, you can laugh at that. I think it's hilarious, actually. But it's very clear in this text that when he goes into the synagogue, and all of these people are amazed at his teaching because he teaches with authority, that there was clearly something going on at that time. That the teaching of the day through the scriptures, through the Old Testament, through the Torah, was boring. In fact, it put people to sleep. It was so boring. And I think... But that is incredibly sad. I hope that's not the case here. I hope that's not the case this morning. Man, if I'm boring you, man, we're doing something wrong. Why do I say that? Because in in our church today, if you are bored with the message of the gospel, then you're, you're saying that the story of a man who was God, that was sent down to become a man, who lived his life, who was born into poverty, he lived his life perfectly, He had some followers. He he was the greatest teacher to ever live. He taught with the greatest authority of any teacher who's ever lived since then and since the beginning. Not only did he have authority over his teaching, he had authority over demons. He had authority over all of the earth. He could command the waves to stop waving, and they would just stop. (laughs) He could command the the wind to stop blowing, and it would stop. He could heal people. And, And then this man sacrificed himself for our sins. He died on a cross in the most gruesome, brutal death you could possibly imagine at the time. And even till today, that is still probably the most brutal, gruesome death you can possibly imagine. But then the grave couldn't keep him. Death couldn't hold him. He rose again three days later. And he came back, he reveals himself to his disciples and to all sorts of people that followed him. And because of this testimony of Jesus' resurrection, we are still here, sitting here today, listening about this. We're still learning about him. If that story is making you bored, then I'm sorry, I don't don't know what will entertain you. But the story of a man who who does all of those things, that, that can't be a boring story. But that does bring up a good point, though, that, that there was many boring, te- there was much boring teaching of the Word of God. And why was that? So back then, at this time, on Saturday morning, you would have whoever was the leader of the synagogue, the teacher that morning, stand up. They would read from the, the, one of the scrolls, 
and they, whatever text happened to be um, for that day. And then what they would do is they wouldn't just teach the word, they would refer to other rabbis and teachers who had taught that scripture, and they would use what these other rabbis had said and quote the quote of a quote of a quote, if you will, and the commentary of the commentary to the people, and it would just be this drawn-out, boring service. And this is what the Jews at the time had to deal with. We got it pretty good, don't we? I like to think so. And these people were amazed at the authority of Christ. And it was because of the authority of Christ that we see this dramatic outburst in the synagogue that morning. In verse 23 it says, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Who are you? Or I know who you are, the Holy One of God. One thing's made very clear throughout the Gospels. The kingdom of God is advancing. In particular, right here, Jesus' ministry has started, and the kingdom of God is now advancing. It's not just advancing in the physical world of, of us humans, but it's also advancing into the spiritual world. When light comes, darkness has to leave. Amen? That's what we're seeing here. And the kingdom of God is advancing, and there's opposition from the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of God cannot be stopped. The gospel is very clear that there is spiritual opposition to the kingdom of God. This is something that I think as as Americans, even myself, we're a little uncomfortable talking about demons, amen? Because to us, it's, it's just one of those topics that you just don't talk about that often. We don't hear it taught in church that often. So a lot of us have kind of skewed ideas about what demons are and what the spiritual realm is that's around us. And maybe some of you have read books about it and it just left you more confused. I know I have. But we do know one thing. The devil is very real. And the demons that follow him are fallen angels that that are following their leader, the devil. And they are very real as well. We come to know them as unclean spirits or demons in and throughout the scriptures. And C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book actually about uh, the the demonic realm, if you will, called The Screwtape Letters. And it's an interesting book. And in it, he says, there's this quote that I want to bring out this morning. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race could fall into about devils. One is the disbelief in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Two different sides of this. There's there's two different ways that we can go when we talk about this. One is that we believe they don't even exist. That we write them off as not not even existing. The other is that we are excessively interested in them. I think that America would be on, on the former rather than the latter. I mean, we generally, I think the devil's greatest work in America is to make himself not exist, to make us not even believe that he's real. We should think about that. Why? Because Jesus acknowledges that there were demonic presence there. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, this man's just having a seizure. Get him out of here. He needs to go to the hospital. No, he says, be quiet and come out of him with authority. There was demonic opposition to the Son of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, you can write this in your notes if you'd like. Put, it says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
That's interesting that we wouldn't have need for armor of God if there wasn't such thing as demonic opposition in our lives, right? We wouldn't have to put this on. But here, all throughout the scriptures, Jesus recognizes it. Jesus commands it to leave. We are called to put on our armor of God because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against these powers and principalities, these rulers and authorities of this present age. Spiritual warfare is very real, church. And I got to say, I honestly have not seen as much blatantly obvious spiritual warfare in the church in America as I have when I do overseas mission trips. Whenever I've gone to, whether it's Costa Rica or Uganda, it's like we see stuff like that in these third world nations so much more obviously than we do here. And the people there are more used to it than we are here. Because I think the devil's done a very good job of hiding himself. And we need to see his schemes and, and and not be tripped up by them all the time. One thing we can learn about Satan is that he's not equal to God. He was created by God, yes. At one time, he was, he was created by God as an angel to serve God. And yet he decided at some point that he didn't want to serve God anymore. He wanted to serve himself, that he wanted worship for himself, that he wanted the praise, and that he wanted to rebel against God's plan, and God cast him out of heaven. And there was many angels that followed him. And it's sad. It's a sad reality that you could be an angel living with God, created by God, worshiping God in his presence full time, and yet still have something in you that says, I I want this for myself. Isn't that interesting? They're created beings. They're not equal with God, and they know their time is short. These are things that I want you guys to remember today. They're created beings. They're not equal to God, and they know their time is short. Another thing that's clear, that demons have a very good Christology. And what's Christology? It's the theology of Christ. They know who he is before anybody else does. They know. who. They, they, they know. The demons know who Jesus is. In fact, they're the first to know this and to clearly oppose him because they know that he has direct authority over them without a question. They know that he is the Holy One of God way before the disciples do. And not even, not even the disciples have come to that conclusion until way later on in the book of Mark. It's interesting that Jesus silences these, these demons when they call him the Holy One of God. There's this huge contrast between the kingdom of darkness, the impurity of this demonic being that is, that, that is in this man, and the Holy One of God, the purity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. There's this huge contrast, and there's this clash between the kingdom of light kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. So Jesus is here teaching another Saturday morning as usual, if you will, and this man stands up in their congregation and starts yelling at him. That would be quite a wild scene. There's two ways that I was thinking about this. One is, was this man always in their congregation? Was this man always in the congregation? And because the teaching was so boring, nothing ever convicted the man Nothing ever convicted him to actually to, to get up and, and to say, like, no, like, that, that's not right, and to say that, that you're teaching the kingdom of God. So we, we don't know. Was this a one-time occurrence? I don't know. One thing I do know is that if this man had been a regular attender, then the gospel message, the good news of Christ, had gone completely over his head until this very point. 
And I pray that for you guys, you would not be able to sit in this church and leave here with the gospel message just being washed over our heads and not understanding it. This is, this is an important matter. And I, I, I urge you guys to, to consider it for yourself, to consider the evidence. Why? Because there's only two kinds of people that don't believe in Christ. I believe there's two kinds of people, and I can categorize them like this. One, the first kind, is the person that has not examined any of the evidence of Christ. They haven't looked, they haven't read their Bible, they haven't examined it for themselves and come to the conclusion after thinking about it that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior of the world. So they don't know him. That's because they haven't examined the evidence. The other person that doesn't believe in Christ is a person that has examined the evidence but refuses to believe it. They've examined the evidence of Christ, but they know that if they decide to believe that this evidence is true, that their life's going to be turned upside down, right? Because it's telling them that they have to basically repent and turn from their sin, their evil ways, and do what God wants us to do. He wants to give us life and life abundantly, but to them, that's like saying, no, Lord, you're taking away my freedom to do whatever the heck I want and decide what's right. You're taking away my liberty to have the power to decide what's right in my life. You're taking away my kingship, Lord, and you're saying that you need to be king of my life. And those are the kind of people that don't believe in God too. It's interesting in James 2.9, it says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. If you are here this morning and you don't believe yet in Christ, I, I urge you to, to look at the evidence as we go through this book and to consider, is, is Jesus the Messiah? Are you going to be willing to let the gospel message penetrate your heart. Because that's what it does. It's like this dagger that goes right into the middle of our heart and it changes our life. It separates us from sin forever. It, it, it literally, is, our sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west. There's nothing greater in your life than that. He's saying that you are no longer held accountable for your mistakes. That's good news. So we don't know whether this, this demon-possessed man was a regular attender or not. I, I, I don't know. But we do know that he was in the church that morning. And for us to think that everybody in church is all angels and everybody outside of the church is all possessed people, that would be just false. That would be a bad theology. That would be a really bad theology. Why? Because it was in the church. He was in the church. A demon was inside the church of God. What's the devil's work in the world? What's his work in the world? Is it not to confront the message of Christ? Is it not to, to seek who he may devour? He prowls around like a roaring lion, but the scriptures tell us that he's seeking who he may devour. And not only that, but he's also the, the king of lies. He seeks to, to, to trip up us as Christians and say, did God really say in his word? Did he really mean this in his word? And that's why he comes into our church. That's why he sends what we call, we know as in the scripture, as wolves in sheep clothing. They're people that act like they're, they're part of the body of Christ, but really their desire and their heart is not of Christ. Because these people, these, these demons especially, they know that there's an invasion of the kingdom of darkness and it started with the coronation of Christ as king. And the demons knew that and they were afraid. They shudder. In 1 John 3, 8, it says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, if you guys turn over to 1 John 3, you should highlight that. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, 8. That's one that's worthy of your highlight. That's worthy of some notes. Why did Jesus appear? To destroy the work of the devil. It's, it's a, the true fact is that we were once of the kingdom of darkness. We were once lost in our sin, lost in our shame. We were once broken people separated from God. But now we've become part of the kingdom of light. And this is why we sing in the morning. There's a certain song, you broke my chains of sin and shame and you covered me with what? Grace. You broke my my chains of sin and shame. You do realize that. That's what we were. We were chained to our sins at one point. We have to remember what we were saved from, the grace that's been given to us in the gospel message. And then when we received the gospel message, for those of you who have received the gospel message, you believe in it, you owe it to all the lost, chained people in this world to go to them and share it, right? That's what we're here for. We're to be light in a dark place. Because we were once part of the kingdom of darkness. All of us. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's the devil's work in our lives, personally, in our church, in our families, in our communities. And the devils know that. The kingdom of darkness knows that's why Christ is. That's why he says, what are you doing here, Jesus? Why are you here, O Holy One of God? You realize that he calls him Jesus of Nazareth, and he, I think the devil pur- purposely does that because he's, the, the devil is of Satan, and Satan is the father of lies. Therefore, he's trying to say Jesus of Nazareth, trying to diminish Jesus' authority. Because why? The, the Messiah has to come from where? Bethlehem. But it's interesting that he still lets it slip. Oh, holy one of God. Nobody else can be the holy one of God except the Messiah. He knows who Jesus was. He knows very well who Jesus was. That Jesus was king and his kingdom was completely opposed to his work. The devil knew that he wanted to know. He wanted to know, Jesus, is this the time of destruction? Am I, am I doomed right now? Why? Because the devils know where they're going. They know there's this place that God had called hell. That's what we know it as. This fiery place of damnation for these, these beings. That's where they're going. And they know their time is short, and yet still they don't repent and confess their sins. It's just it's wild for me to believe that, that demons have a better eschatology than any one of us. They know where they're going. <laughs> the demons do. Lord, help us. Help us to remember that we're, we are saved, and that as children of God, we are going to heaven. That we're one with, with Christ, and because of his blood that was shed on the cross, he's redeemed us from our sins, and now we can have unity and oneness with Christ, and we know where we're going. This demon had a better eschatology than anybody else in that room at that point. He knew where he was going. The demons believe, but they don't trust God. For them, it is undeniable that God exists, but it's an unwelcome reality. Is the, is the existence of God in your life an unwelcome reality? <laughs> Amen, I hope not. <laughs> and that's what demons do. They're led by Satan to do his work, to tempt people to sin, challenging them. Jesus rebukes this demon in verse 25 to 28. says, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And all of them were amazed, 
so that they questioned among themselves, who is this? What is this? Uh, teaching with authority, he even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, his teaching and fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. What a day to show up to church, right? <laughs> what a day. These people all came to church. It was just a normal Sabbath morning. It was a normal Sunday morning for them, if you will. And they are confronted with this, this authority of Christ that he not only has authority in his teaching, but he has authority over unclean spirits that were in their church. He casts them out and they leave. And it wasn't just a little scene. It was a huge scene. This man convulsed and fell over, but it didn't do him any more harm. We learned from the book of Luke chapter 4. And it immediately leaves. It has to listen to Jesus. The work of Jesus was unique in his technique, but not in its occurrence. What do I mean by that? The technique Jesus used to cast out this demon was unique. Why? Because he did not go through any kind of ritual or incantation or anything to cast this demon out. He just said, leave, and it left. Why do I say that? Because was demon possession, demonic possession, uh, anything unusual for them at the time? No. A lot of Jewish scholars, and going back um, all, as far back as you can in history, um, they knew, the Jews at this time would have known about demon possession, that demons were real. They believed in them. And that there were actually certain Jews, um, Jew Jewish men, leaders and teachers that had the ministry of exorcisms. But they had a process that they would go, to, go through for that in particular. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just says, leave. And it left. What's interesting we find later on in the scriptures is there's other occurrences where demons show up. As Jesus is pushing the kingdom of God forward, it's advancing into the world. Demons are showing up all over the place, confronting Jesus, and Jesus has to remove them. He has to get them out of the way because the kingdom of God can't be stopped. No demon can stand in its way. They even know that. And, and then at time, the disciples even come back and say, hey, there's people, you know, this is further on into Jesus' ministry, there's people that are casting out demons in your name, Jesus. What should we tell them to do? Should we tell them to stop? That there were other people casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, no, like they're doing it in my name. Like it's, it, this is what's so, what's so interesting is one of these occurrences, we see this in Luke eleven fourteen. 14. It says, one day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. When the demon was gone, the man began to speak and the crowd was amazed, but some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He's got power from Satan, the prince of demons. And others trying to test Jesus demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. And he knew their thoughts and he said to them, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feud will fall apart. And you say that I'm empowered by Satan. But if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? He even brings the question to them. What about your own people? What about your own leaders that cast out demons? What will they have to say about this? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. Verse 20, but, but if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. Wow. If Jesus is casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. This is one of these scenes in the Bible in Mark chapter 1 where we really see the kingdom of God has arrived and it is advancing it's not just staying in one little place. It's advancing, not only uh, physically amongst men and women, but it's also advancing in the spiritual world. It is kicking demons out. I think that's interesting. 
because he says in verse 21 in Luke chapter 14, um, or sorry, Luke chapter 11, verse 14 to 23, he says, For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe, until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Who's the strong man in that story? Jesus. Jesus is the stronger man. The devil's got his possessions, the world. He's got some of us because he told us lies. We've bought into these lies as Americans. And Jesus is saying, but I'm the strong man that comes in and I wreck that house. So I come in and I take his possessions and I carry them away. Why? Jesus doesn't want the devil to have any of us. He doesn't want the devil to fool any of us. He wants us to believe in him and have life. Do you believe that? kingdom of God has arrived among us, and it is still here today, amen? It's still advancing today. We see that all around. around. That's why we have missionaries all around the world. That's why we support organizations that speak the truth. And why do I say this is important? Because the response of the crowd was not conviction. It was attraction. The response of the crowd when Jesus casts out this demon, and there's this big scene in the church, they're amazed at his teaching and the authority that he has over demons and in his teaching. Their response is attraction, not conviction. It did not cut into their hearts. They were attracted by it. They were entertained. Are we just entertained by Christ or are we actually on the field playing the game? The response of the crowd is so important in this because when we're actually out there doing the work of Christ, we're supporting ministries like Alternatives Women's Center who in Escondido, you guys are a big supporter of them as well as us, and we love what they do. Why? Because they give these young gals that are pregnant an alternative to abortion. We see throughout the United States right now just just huge wave of people that are saying abortion's okay. Up until a certain point, it's just murdering kids. And we're saying that's okay? Do you not believe that's a lie of the devil? It is. And that's why we support organizations that come and speak the truth into their lives. They share the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ with these young gals, and they see many of them come to know him, and that is such good news. The crowds remained unchanged. They told people about Jesus, but they didn't actually repent and believe. Wasn't that Jesus' message? Wasn't that his message? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We read that just in, earlier on in Mark 1, chapter uh, 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Did these people actually believe in the gospel when they heard this? I I, I would say no. They were amazed. They were entertained. They thought, man, this is cool. We're going to come back to church next week because we want to see what he's going to do next week. And I encourage you, yes, we want to come back. I want to come back to church every single week because I want to see what God's going to do because I see him working in each one of your lives. Pastor Gunner sees him working in each one of your lives, and we praise God for that. Every week at our church, we hand out these prayer cards, and we get back stacks of them that we pray for throughout the week, and we see so many praise reports. Why? Because God still faithfully hears our prayers and answers them. It's no shock to him what's going on in your life, but it always is a shock to us when he actually answers our prayers, I find. I believe he answers prayers. I've seen it, I've seen it firsthand. So we see that the kingdom of God has appeared. The the kingdom of God is confronted. There's demonic confrontation. The the confrontation is blown away. Jesus basically says, leave, and and this demon leaves. I find that interesting. 
There's an authority of the kingdom of God that no other kingdom has ever had. And what's interesting to me is that the world today struggles. And I, I, I personally graduated with a degree in criminal justice um, from Cal State San Marcos. And a lot of my classes had to do with sociology. And if you're unfamiliar with sociology, sociology is basically the study of worldly systems, if you will, and structures that are in place that affect people's lives. And what's interesting is sociologists will always go back and say, this person committed this crime because of this system that's in place and their family structure and this and that and this. And I have a really hard time believing that. Yes, I, I believe that that actually might have had some kind of effect on the person. I, yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. But that, does that explain why they killed somebody? Does that explain why they're back on the streets doing drugs again? Does that explain why? No, because they made a personal choice that they're going to sin. Because the devil is at work. See, sociologists and all sorts of, uh, all sorts of smart people out there that don't believe in Christ have a very hard time explaining to us the reason for evil. I mean, working with the Escondido Police Department, I see it too, but how, how do people explain evil when there's a shooting in Las Vegas that happened, the shooting in New Zealand that happened? How do you explain that level of evil? Don't tell me it was because his family abused him as a kid. No, that cannot be the only reason. No, it's because the devil's at work and he is seeking whom he may devour. We know that the better answer to this is that there is sin in the world and that the devil is the leader of that sin. That the devil it re- represents all death, all suicide, all depression, abortion, and it's, it's all because of the works of the devil in our, in our world. And against all of that wickedness and evil, Jesus comes. In opposition to all of that evil that the devil has been trying to implant into our lives and into our communities, Jesus comes to confront it. And the kingdom of God advances. And you're going to see that throughout all of the book of Mark. And it's such an exciting story to watch. The kingdom of God advance. Jesus comes to confront evil, to destroy the work of the devil. And we know one day in Revelation 19 that all evil will be crushed. That's our hope. That all evil will be crushed. There will be peace. Eventually, this king is going to put it all together as planned. That his purpose for all of eternity is the work of Jesus on the cross and the impact that that had for all of eternity is the greatest impact that shook the whole world. Uh, and, and, and up till this point, it's still the greatest impact we've ever seen. That this is of infinite significance. Why did Jesus save us? You might ask that. Why did Jesus save us? So we can be a light in the world, right? That we can be sharing the gospel and the good news of people. Can people change on their own from their sinful ways? You can give them a program, you can give them anything you want, but no, unless the Spirit of God convicts them that their sin and their separation from God, and they turn and they repent 180 degrees from their ways, they get on their knees and say, Jesus, I want you to be king of my life. I'm tired of being king because I screw up too much. We've all been there that believe in Christ. We've all had to get on our knees and say that, Lord, you need to be king of my life because when I'm king of my life, I screw up big time. And I do evil things when I'm king of my life. And we need to understand that Jesus is king here. He's king and he has authority not only in his teaching, but also in his actions. He has authority over all of the world, 
over all disease, over all sickness, and we're going to find that out more so next week. And that eventually our hope is that Jesus is going to put it all back together. That there's a plan of redemption. That when we look in, look in the news and we're depressed by how much sin and wickedness is in the world, right? That we have hope, we have an optimistic view of the future, amen? Because we know who Jesus is, what he's going to do, and, and what he's doing right now. That he's saving people's lives. That's the good news of Christ. I just pray that if you are here this morning and you haven't considered who this Jesus is yet, that you would consider him. He is the one that has authority to change your life. That your life cannot change, it cannot get any better without him. Let's pray. Father God, as we close this morning, I'm just reminded, Lord, that you and your kingdom, it came with authority, God, and that authority was met with confrontation, Lord, and then your power and your authority was revealed through the demonstration of you sending this demon away. Lord, you explain why people are amazed at this because they've never seen this before. Lord, there might just be somebody here this morning that's never seen the authority of Christ proclaimed. Lord, that you have authority in our lives, Lord, to separate us from sin, to set us aside for your own purposes, for your own work. Lord, that you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And not only for our lives here on earth, but also for eternity, God, and that is such good news. Father, I pray that we'd reflect on these things that we've learned from your authority and the authority of your Son and the kingdom of God that he leads this week. We thank you, Lord, for the authority that Christ has in our lives. We just pray these things in Jesus' good and precious name. The church said, amen.